Hi, James. Ben, how are you? You know, it's interesting. I wanted to say that I'm scared because we are recording this on a Thursday morning here, Wednesday night in the U.S. And basically, from what I can tell, being in Taiwan and mostly looking at Twitter, over the last three to four hours or so, the attitude and posture of America has sort of flipped completely on its head. Yes. Tom Hanks has coronavirus. The NBA is suspended. Donald Trump gave a speech. We'll just leave it at that. (laughs) Um, How does it feel there? It's kind of surreal. It's been a little bit, it's definitely accelerated with those events that you just described over the last few hours. But San Francisco, for folks who aren't in the States, and I'm sure it's like this in a number of other cities, it started to turn into a ghost town. It was very noticeable this week. A number of companies started switching to work from home. I was talking to one of my colleagues on Tuesday morning who normally commutes quite a way. It's normally a 75-minute commute. He did it in 45 minutes, and people just aren't coming to work. They're all working from home. It's got this eerie ghost town feel to it. I'm sure San Francisco is far from alone in that. It's not at the point of some of the pictures that you were seeing out of China where the streets were literally completely abandoned and there were no cars on the road at all, but it's certainly moved a lot closer to that direction. It's an interesting point. When I said at the beginning, I want to say scared, I feel it's weird for me because America seems to be going through what I went through like six or seven weeks ago. And in part, that's just because by virtue of being in Taiwan and, you know, I think Taiwan reacted to this very, very early. You know, the government was screening people from Wuhan back in December when there was still, you know, doctors were still being arrested for talking about this just because there was chatter about something is happening in Wuhan. And we went through SARS in 2003, and I think 80 people died. And so there was a sort of conditioned response of we've been through SARS, we're hearing chatter on the ground, and we really don't trust China. (laughs) And I think that sort of prompted a response And when Wuhan sort of got locked down in late January, that's when all the sort of like panic buying happened here, when the toilet paper got sold out. I'm not sure the toilet paper got sold out here. I think it did at Costco, actually. So maybe it's a human thing. But um, all the masks were suddenly gone. The government has since sort of taken over distribution of that. And the kids were out of school. But this was back in February. And now the kids are back in school. And it's sort of like a life's return to normal a bit. I think it's probably going to go back to that status a little bit just because of the global spread of this. So it's been weird watching this. You definitely were in front of it. And I think we're starting to have our toilet paper moment more recently. I was catching a Uber home from work and talking to the driver, and he was talking about having to go to quite some lengths to find toilet paper. So it started to take root over here. It's interesting, though. I think I panicked maybe a little earlier than folks in the West I was reading about this thing, and it might have been in part from talking to you and and reading the update, but the nature of this virus where you have three to five days where you're asymptomatic with it, but you are spreading it, and it's like, hang on, this is in a global city. It's spreading around China. This notion that you're going to be able to restrict it to China when you've got flights all around the world, I'm not necessarily certain I buy that this is just going to stay in one place. Like SARS and all these other things were horrible, but you, once you got it, you got sick and you knew to stay home or people knew to isolate you. But if you're running around without realizing you have it and you're spreading it and the nature of a global society, even if it starts in what is relatively for China, a small city and starts spreading throughout China, I just felt like, how is this not going to spread everywhere? 
Yeah, especially because now we know it was spreading for a good seven to eight weeks before that lockdown happened. And so by definition, anything that happened after that was too late. I mean, something to keep in mind when China says they bought the world time. I mean, (laughs) they did not buy the world time. They arrested doctors that might have bought the world time. But then, you know, that's the downside of having centralized control. The upside is you can then lock down an entire city and lock down an entire country. And it does appear to sort of be getting under control there. And it was interesting, though, again, you mentioned being early. I've been reflecting on what I've written about this. I first wrote about it back in January. And I wonder, like, could I have done more to sort of raise the alarm? In some respect, I do regret not saying it earlier. There's some aspect of some people on Twitter were. We'll get to that in a little bit. But there's also some aspect of people weren't ready to hear it, right? Like, there's this weird thing that I've discovered. I mean, maybe it's obvious to lots of people, but it took me a while to figure this out while writing Stratechery, is I might have something that I want to write about or an idea. And that idea is not really going to resonate unless it's sort of hooked into something that, whether it be in the news or, again, like the sort of zeitgeist or something around it. And a perfect example of this, I think I've talked about this in the podcast before, but there was an article I wrote, I think in 2014, that was basically aggregation theory. Like only a couple like small little details were missing. And it was arguably a better articulation of it because I think it was about like European publishers or something along those lines. And no one read it. It was like my least read article of the year. And in retrospect, it was really good, but it wasn't, it didn't tap into something. It wasn't connected to something where people could sort of grab onto it and get a hold of it. And it kind of felt that way a bit with this virus where People were talking about it, and maybe I feel like I could have written more about it and that this is probably going to be a thing. But one, obviously, you know, even though I was close to it, I think I was lulled a bit because Taiwan handled it so well. So that was part of it. But then also it's like, to what extent were people ready to hear it? I mean, right. every time I wrote about it, I mostly got people complaining about me not writing about tech or people saying that, you know, the, just a the flu sort of thing. And yeah, it, like, it wasn't in the zeitgeist yet. Trying to cast my mind back. In a sense, it was. But the thing that was in the zeitgeist was not so much the virus. It was more China. We were coming off the trade war. Everyone was so focused on that. And we just had trade peace. And then this virus breaks out. And it's the story of how China's arrested doctors. It turns out they helped discovered it. And if they hadn't locked these folks up, hadn't punished them and actually acted on it, then they would have got it a lot more. This was a story about China as opposed to a story about a virus spreading around the world. I think you were right. I'm not sure people were ready for it. It's interesting as you talk about the zeitgeist, it was something that I internalized some time ago. When I was working back at HBS, I did a lot more writing and you'd want your ideas to get read. And I began to almost think of it as like surfing, where you can be out there on a board with an idea paddling away. But if there's no wave there that's going to come along and pick you up, you're not going to go very far. And it's almost like you have to learn to read the ocean. There's an aspect of you can have a great idea, but too late, too early won't work. You've got to find a current. You've got to find a wave to attach to it. And it's got to be the right one. The way the swell was breaking was all about China, and you'd written about how this is going to come to the U.S. I wonder as well, like, would people have read it? It's like you're trying to catch a wave that's not there. Yeah, all true. Honestly, you put it that way. I do feel like I should have written more about this sooner. I mean, I think I definitely wrote about the China angle, and there's definitely you know a fit in points I wanted to make about China to talk about the fact that the news was censored and led to this being much larger than would have otherwise. It's a point that's a little hard to make now, 
given how badly this is going in the West and how how poorly we have responded. But it's interesting because the failures of China and the failures of we'll just focus on the U.S. for now are in some respects not mirror images. like They're inverse. So the problem with the Chinese response was the hiding of information and the suppressing of information for the first seven to eight weeks when this might have been contained to the benefit of the whole world. China likes to say they helped the whole world in this case. That would have been helping the whole world to stop the virus in the first place. At the same time, once China did respond, the centralization and the forcefulness was, it appears, effective. And if you think about it, a virus, a pandemic, is the ultimate example of negative externalities, right? Yes, most people are not going to get seriously sick, particularly young people. But the problem is other people get sick. And other people get sick, some percentage of them will need to go to the hospital, and to the intensive care unit. And if you get too many people in the intensive care unit, suddenly the mortality rate skyrockets because they're just you can't take care of enough people. Right. And so you had a situation in China where you know, the fatality rates in Wuhan was way higher than anywhere else in China because the medical system got overwhelmed. And so you get all this talk that everyone's heard about of flattening the curve, where, yes, a lot of people are going to get it, but you want to sort of extend out you know, how long it takes for everyone to get it so that the healthcare system doesn't get overwhelmed. You're asking people to make personal decisions about their actions that are going to like pay off multiple steps down the chain. Again, it's this externality versus issue. And in that case, having a government that doesn't necessarily give a damn about personal liberties is actually super beneficial. I mean, I hear you. It's a bitter pill to swallow in some respects. It is. And I guess my response to that is in this particular circumstance, after it started to spread, having an authoritarian government makes sense. But I'm not sure I want to structure my government and structure my society around how we're best going to deal with a pandemic. I say that knowing that there's going to be a lot of suffering. It's already started and there's a lot more to come, but I really worry about overcorrecting, like learning the wrong lessons from this. Well, it's very interesting because I mentioned this sort of the inverse. So in the U.S., the inverse to China, as far as the government response is, I think, pretty apparent. To say that this has been just a complete and utter failure of the federal government in particular is, frankly, an understatement. The refusal from the very top to use the bully pulpit to tell people that this is a problem that people need to prepare is been truly, truly awful. And then the other big issue as far as this lack of testing is that the CDC tried to centralize everything. They tried to say, no, no one else can build a test. We're going to build the test. And the FDA said, no, doctors can't prescribe it. Or they put rules on doctors. They had to have visited China or have to be exposed to someone with it. And what happened was is that people were handicapped. But that gets to the other inverse, right? So if we have sort of the government response where you can see the benefits of the Chinese approach once it's already out there versus the failure of the U.S. approach, well, what about the early warning sign? And again, the issue in China was that there was no way for the word to get out. And so by the time the government responded, it was already in many respects too late for the people of Wuhan. In the case of the U.S., that actually worked. You talked about how San Francisco was already shut down as of a week ago. If you step back, it's a pretty incredible story. Why is San Francisco shutting down? Why is Seattle shutting down? Why were conferences being closed? Why were companies telling people to work from home? Why were people doing the toilet paper runs? The reason is not because of the central government. The federal government, no one was telling people to do that. They were telling them the opposite. They're telling us, no, it's no problem. It's going to be fine. It was not because of local governments, which are still dragging their feet. As we record, New York is still going to have a parade or some crazy stuff. This is the most amazing thing. It wasn't because of data. The whole point of the test fiasco is that we don't have data 
to say, oh, look, we need to act now. What happened was you had all these disparate, disconnected, different folks, private companies and private citizens reacting because of Twitter. <laughs> like, really? Like, epidemiologists were on Twitter. Public health officials were on Twitter. Yes, that crazy VC person that drives you up the wall was on Twitter raising the alarm saying like this exponential growth, this is going to get very bad. We need to react now. We need to react now. And yes, back in January, they looked crazy and people were making fun of them. Even as a few weeks ago, people were making the joke. So I can't wait till VCs get into epidemiology or I can't wait till <laughs> epidemiologists start telling us how to do VC. But they were right. They were absolutely right. And I talked about the zeitgeist changing. It started to change the zeitgeist. It didn't come from the top. It didn't come from the center. It came from the bottom. It came from the ground up. It came from lots of people thinking about this and conversing it and building a case and this bubbling, 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 bubbling. And it's going to be a very hard thing to sort of appreciate in the long run because it's going to get very bad. It's going to get worse. The nature of this and the way like all these indicators are lagging indicators, but if you think through the math of how these things work, basically every single day that something was done earlier than it might have been done otherwise will in the long run play out to hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people impacted. And so all those conferences that were canceled last week, all those companies that started working from home previously, San Francisco become a ghost town three days earlier than it would have otherwise. It's going to make a difference. And it happened not because of data, not because of government. It happened because people were able to sort of get the word out. And again, it's going to get ugly. And this isn't to say that the U.S. has it all right, because <laughs> the failures are going to be so apparent to everyone to see. And there's going to be a lot of talk about them and a lot of it's going to be fair. But it's interesting to put it in the contrast to China because it's such a direct, direct opposite. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is, oftentimes we're talking about companies on this show, and one of the recurring themes is strengths are inversely related to weaknesses. And this is almost like one of those shows where we're looking at the difference between Apple and Amazon from a certain lens, where one is like very centralized and the other is very decentralized, and they both have strengths and weaknesses And in the initial response versus the later response. And likewise, the other thing, though, as you're talking and talking about the failures are going to be very apparent. And it brings to mind strategy. And it's going to be very easy for folks in the West to look at the Chinese response subsequent to waking up and deciding to do something about it and to see the benefits of that approach. And just to say, you know what, we should take aspects of that approach and we should have a stronger centralized government. And I feel like this is one of those traps that folks fall into when they examine strategy, just like you look at Apple and you say, oh, look at them. They have one profit and loss. They have a functional organization, even though they're one of the largest companies in the world. This is what enables them to do what they do. Like we should copy pieces of that. And it's like, well, hang on. A strategy is like an integrated set of choices. And again, you want to have reference to the strengths and weaknesses of the organization. And if you are focused on just a few products and you're great at designing and you want to make sure these products are insanely great and the secrecy and everything else, then that model is appropriate. But if you want to do something different or your strengths are different, then trying to cherry pick aspects of the strategy and apply them somewhere else. I'm a little nervous that one of the results of this is going to be stronger centralized government. Like the Chinese response was so strong. We should have aspects of that. We should copy it. Now, 
I think that would be a mistake. It would be a mistake, particularly in the context of everything that's been done centrally in the US, with perhaps the exception of the Chinese travel ban. And I feel like that was in response to the previous zeitgeist of anti-China as opposed to really being concerned about the virus. All the centralized responses, the CDC testing, all of this, like the CDC trying to shut down individual researchers talking about this and putting the data out there. And eventually the researchers just saying, screw this, we're going to put it out there. And the nature of the response of the government in China, when people started talking about it in the US, where it actually starts to, like you said, change the zeitgeist, folks weren't put in jail, it was saving lives, and it worked as it should have. Yeah. Well, I think something we've talked about previously is you're not going to beat China by out china in China, right? And there's an aspect of you know, the U.S., we talked about previously, needs to succeed by unlocking and enabling individuals, or individual companies and individual actors and innovation on the edges and having more freedom than less. And that's the only way you're going to win. And I think that's why it's important to learn these lessons. Like the failures that have happened to date have come from not letting individuals on the edges try to figure it out, not unlocking sort of private enterprise. And I think one of the things I was trying to get at today, and it was weird because in some respects, what I wrote about today or yesterday, I should say, fit the zeitgeist. But I was worried that like it would quickly not fit the zeitgeist. So I was like, I had to like sneak it in under the deadline was sort of reiterating this point. This idea of sort of misinformation has been raised as such a problem on the internet. It's a problem for social networks. And to be very, very, very clear, there is absolutely information online. There is massive amounts of it. In fact, there is basically an unlimited amount of it. And it's interesting, though, to think about why is that? Why is there so much more misinformation than today? Is that because social networks are uniquely evil in this regard? Well, I think it's more a function of if you give everyone a voice and let everyone publish, you're going to get everyone's opinion, and a lot of it is crap. (laughs) That's what happens. But this is where the question of relative versus absolute comes in. Because when you get all that stuff, you're also, on the other end of the curve, getting a lot more really good and useful stuff that was not sort of available previously. And I think it's something to think about. This has really been driven home to me, this idea of what changes zeitgeist. What changes zeitgeist was Twitter. It was individuals being able to publish what they wanted. It was the Seattle flu study being able to go directly to the world via Twitter and say, this has been circulating for six to seven weeks. That's what prompted the response. The U.S. was not responding at all. We were just totally paralyzed. That was the series of tweets that sort of unlocked the whole thing. And when you think broad picture, there are obviously downsides of misinformation, but it's so easy if you're searching for it, right? You can say, oh, look, at there's all this misinformation about the virus, and that's a bad thing. It's like, well, you have to take it in the context of the whole. There's also a lot of good information, and that's information out there for a while. And in the absence of any sort of centralized leadership, who, by the way, you want the centralized leadership yeah. deciding what is allowed and what isn't allowed, that has totally failed in this case. What has saved us is the fact that everyone can be a publisher. This has been your point all along as we've talked on this topic, which is, And I'm not going to shy away from the fact that I am not in love with some or all of the social networks, some or all of the time. 
but the heavy hand of regulation, as soon as I've proposed that, your point is like, okay, that's fine, but who's going to decide? And there's no better case than right now than if you had a government body deciding and the way that the government, and I'm sure it was stemming from the top, was attempting to suppress publication of this information. And it feels like the only reason was concern over stock market. And it feels very politically driven as opposed to what's best for folks. Like you don't want that deciding what is okay and what is not okay to publish. Yeah. I mean, I didn't think of that angle specifically, but you're right. I mean, like, would you want the executive branch of the U.S. government to have been able to control what was or was not defined as misinformation and what was or was not censored on Twitter for the past eight months? The cost would be astronomical in human lives, right? Like it's going to get bad in some respects. Today is the best day of this crisis because it feels like a lot of people really suddenly woke up to what's going on. But the payout of that waking up is weeks in the future. In the meantime, it's going to get worse. The news is going to be awful. There's going to be people dying in the hallways of hospitals. It's going to be absolutely brutal. But it would have been far, far, far more brutal had people not been raising the alarm for the last seven to eight weeks. And literally, one of the best examples, I read this in, a, I think, Megan McCarlin had an article of this or a column about this. I hadn't heard it before. But suppose there is a lily pad in a pond, right? And it doubles every day. And on the 48th day, the lily pads completely cover the pond. On which day was the pond half covered? The day before. That's right. The day before, people have such a hard time. I mean, I'm sounding like the stupid VCs. I was like, were you trying to to trick me then? No, they have such a hard time wrapping their heads around exponential growth. And like literally every single day that companies stop having people go out, stop traveling, stop doing whatever it was, is going to save lives in the long run. And I'm so grateful that in the face of total government failure, at least we had a channel by which normal people could raise the alarm and actions could be taken. So I don't want to diminish any of what you just said, but it was somewhat annoying that if I opened Twitter and it was going to be feeding me stuff algorithmically, I was more likely to read about the fact that Harry Potter had the flu or that you could take your meth or cocaine into the police station and they will test it for coronavirus for free than it was that I was likely to see reports the likes of which you described from the Seattle flu study on Twitter. So I still am a little bit bugged about some of the algorithmic thing, but I want to raise that. I don't want it to diminish from what you just said. And I certainly don't want to be, I'm not raising it as an argument against centralized control, because I feel like the last little while has definitely proven the case for it not to be a good idea. Well, it's not a good idea if you want to have a free society, right? right. Like, there's a, like a binary choice facing societies these days, because tech makes it possible to centralize power in a way that was never possible previously. Well, like, that's what we see. Like you, people talk about surveillance capitalism. Give me a break. You want surveillance, go to China, right? And that is one way to go with technology. And like, that's the choice. Are we going to go in that direction? Or are we going to go in the liberating direction and freeing people and giving more information, knowing we're having full knowledge that when you unleash a deluge of information, there's going to be so much crap in there. There's going to be so much misinformation. And I think a fair criticism of the article, I did some like normal distributions and suggested that misinformation on one side and valuable misinformation on the other. <laughs> be like, well, it's not equal. Like, yes. well, that's fair. Like, I would bet if you count every article, Like there's more misinformation out there than really valuable stuff. I think that's a very fair criticism. But I would also argue if you count impact 
I actually think it goes in the opposite direction. Like those tweets about the Seattle flu study finding out that there was a new strain and it was connected to the strain six weeks ago. The number of lives that are going to be saved by that tweet, I would argue, makes up for all of the yeah. stupid tweets you're talking about yeah, that yeah, were full yeah. of misinformation. I 100% agree. I guess my frustration is the algorithm and the business models associated with the algorithms, they're more likely to start pushing stuff out of the misinformation than the super impactful stuff. And that's the frustration. I don't feel that frustration is a counter at all to any of what you just said. It is a frustration in addition to what you just said. Again, it's a fair point, but I think what we're both sort of, what I sense we're on the same page on is... Like you don't get to just choose to have only the good stuff. It's a point I've been trying to make again and again. I think this is a great example. You can't say, I want to have all the good ideas and smart people and all yeah. the good information, but I want to have none of the bad information because they come as a package, right? Like you get both ends of the yeah. distribution. And again, we can argue about what it looks like, right. but there needs to be an appreciation and to a degree, which I don't think there is, and this is sort of the point of this article, that yes, misinformation has a cost. It has a very real cost. But we need to keep in mind that the circumstances that allow for misinformation also allow for truly great and valuable and important information to emerge. And, and you can't have one without the other. And I surely, again, over looking at the way things have played out, and we've talked about it, I am not ready to give up being able to have people speak their mind and put important stuff out there. Like misinformation is worth it. That's, I guess, how I would frame it. Yes, you're right. You get both as a package or you get neither. And looking how this played out at the beginning in China and but just so many different things. Like I don't want to talk to you and look over my shoulder and wonder if I overstep my bounds and whether I'm going to end up in jail. And like if the price of that is we have, again, a whole bunch of misinformation. And that's not to say that it's great or I like it. I obviously don't. I don't think you do either. But that price is worth it to me. Or we just have to put up with the potential of people getting mad at us at Twitter. <laughs> like, yeah. that's a, it's like a different form of enforcement. So the way that I approach this article, I think just to sort of step back, we're going through my conclusions backwards. But I talked about zero trust networking, which is actually something near and dear to your heart because that's sort of a core product of what Cloudflare does. The last two weeks, I've been very busy. There's been much work on the weekends. It's one of the core products that we have is called Cloudflare Access as part of the Cloudflare for Teams bundle. And Access is basically taking the idea of zero trust and making it available as a service. So just to back up, like zero trust is... So zero trust, this, this notion is once upon a time, it was a safe assumption that if you had an application that was important for folks to use, they would be working inside of an office. And so the metaphor is the castle and moat. You have folks inside the office, everyone inside the walls, inside the moat is trusted, can gain access to the application. And gradually people started to move out of the castle with remote work. And that's what a VPN is designed to do it basically creates using encryption to tunnel someone in under the moat and allows them to access the internal applications. The idea of zero trust is recognizing the natural end state of the internet is everyone's distributed everywhere. And so having this castle moat 
really doesn't make sense anymore. Like you've got people distributed all over the world, having the offices, the centralizing function or the place where all your security takes place doesn't really make sense. So just assume nobody is trusted. And so every time someone wants to gain access to an internal application, they need to authenticate. You probably want to check that the device is like a good device. There's probably a token associated with it as well. And so what our product does access is basically allows folks who have internally hosted applications to put them on the internet, to take them out from behind the VPN, make them accessible to the world. And this has been a really big thing because hardware-based VPNs, there are limits to the number of people they support. They don't scale well. No, they do not. And obviously, if everybody's looking for VPNs all at the same time, there's lag in terms of getting them and then installing them. There's the cost et cetera, et cetera. And there are companies that are wholesale sending people to work from home. And so the hardware-based solution isn't working. The companies are finding that as a result of sending all their employees home, they have hit the limits of what their VPNs can handle and they're surging way past. So we've been bringing on lots of folks and saying, okay, you've got internal applications. You need to make them accessible to folks who are working from home. We have this solution. And for our existing customers and also for small businesses, folks less than 500 people, we've made the decision to give this away for free for the next six months until September. So people can sign up and use it and just want to give back to both customers and also small businesses who are hurting a lot as a result of this at the moment. Yeah. And just for the record, I didn't write about Zero Trust Networking because you haven't had the product. It was just a sort of a a happy coincidence. But there is something that I just to highlight, because you talked about the limitations of the old model. What's really, I think, critical to understand about Zero Trust Networking and to understand the point I was trying to make is not just that it overcomes the limitations of the old model, but it offers massive benefits in a way that the old model couldn't. And so, for example, you talked about using a VPN to access internal applications, you know, that were traditionally actually hosted on-premise in the server room. But now you can access those applications from anywhere, from any device without having to, you know, have a hardware VPN. But two, you can access third-party SaaS services. So maybe you have your stuff on Box or you're using Office 365 or whatever. I mean, there's hundreds of them. And also all that stuff that's inside your on-premise server, well, maybe that's in the cloud. And this idea of shifting to sort of an individual-based authentication instead of having like a geographic-based authentication, it doesn't just scale better and let people have more devices and from more places. It also unlocks your flexibility from your entire IT stack because it's such a more rational way of approaching it. And again, it's not just accessing services. You can also on a very granular level say, okay, here's internal application X. Ben needs access to this part of it. James needs access to this part of it. And so there's a security point where if Ben's compromised, he doesn't get access to James's stuff, but also it provides a better experience. Like I actually only have the stuff that I need. I don't have anyone other stuff. And why does this work? You're actually making computational decisions at the exact moment that people are accessing stuff. Oh, who is this? What should they get? And it's very, very granular. Why is that possible? It's possible because there's zero marginal cost. There's zero transaction cost. This idea of everything that the internet makes possible. So it's not just that the security model is better. It's that it unlocks entirely new ways of computing and accessing and interacting with data in a way that is super beneficial. The key part is you have to think about in internet weights. You have to think with internet assumptions, not with sort of the old school geographic based assumptions, which really is what undergirded the old firewall model. 
Right. 12 months ago when we were doing the IPO, like this was what I was thinking about, like how the internet has evolved so much at the application, at the store and compute layer. Like you used to host these things internally and then you'd need a network layer, a VPN to get in. And, and so it's this instance, this virus where it's sending vast numbers of people home outside of the walls of the castle and moat are really bringing to light the limitations of the existing model, but also you're right, the benefits that exist. So every individual person has an individual set of applications that they get access to, and they all can be very different. And based on those individual applications, you can create a landing page for the internal applications that's specific to them. So they go to that place and they know exactly what they have access to or exactly where to find it. That sounds silly, but like the number of these internal applications that spawn all over companies and how it can be so complicated to onboard people, to offboard people. If people are used to getting access to everything in the office and then their VPNing in is at the same place, like it just solves so many problems. The thing that I found so insightful about your article, though, was how you used the castle and moat analogy. You started with zero trust, and I thought it was going to be very technically focused, but how you extended the zero trust and the notion of what it was replacing with castle and moat, there was almost a societal angle and a societal over time and how once upon a time societies were castle and moat, but how they're moving in a zero trust like globally, this notion of zero trust is spreading. I thought that was phenomenal. Well, I was, it was kind of lucky in a way because it's like the castle and moat analogy. It was like taking the analogy backwards. Well, let's talk about actual castle and moats. And it turns out I actually wrote about castles and moats for all intents and purposes last fall, talking about the third estate and this idea of everyone being a publisher and how that really did transform society. Like the castle and moat era was an era, all information was centralized within the church. And so you had the centralized overarching authority of the church. And underneath that, you had all these like individual city states that were literally secured by being castles and moats. And what happened? The printing press came along and the printing press had certain economic qualities about it, which were you wanted to get a sufficient number of runs because it was a fixed cost. So you wanted to get, you know, books were zero marginal cost, relatively speaking, to the fixed cost of the printing press. So it worked out to have the same language, for example. And you wanted to have the largest language as possible to maximize sort of your economic leverage. What that ended up producing in the long run was a shift away from city states underneath an overarching church to nation states that were unified largely by language and which would throw off the power of the church or incorporate the power of the church into an internal church or to the Church of England, you know, to take an obvious <laughs> example. Or, you know, and that happened in country after country. The printing press is what precipitated the dissipation of the castle and moat, like the castle and moat went away. And you think about that, the castle and moat, this idea of there being a centralized control of something. And then what makes that go away? Well, the context of that article was the modern printing press is the internet. And now instead of there being, you know, you have to build a printing press and then get zero marginal cost on the backside. Well, everyone has a printing press. And oh, by the way, that printing press is zero marginal cost on the front side as well. It costs nothing to publish. It is free to publish. Weirdly, we're almost moving. If you think about our jungle analogy, we're weirdly kind of moving back to the original one where there's these overarching entities like the big platforms. And then on those entities, it's increasingly unstable to have like medium-sized entities. You're back to the individual. You're back to smaller pieces. And we're only starting this upheaval. And I think this point about the information fits in with this. This idea there being a deluge of information. If there's a deluge, a moat's not going to help you very much, right? You can't 
filter all of the deluge through a few moats, through a few gatekeepers, through a few folks that are controlling information. And that's why we get all this information, and a lot of it is bad. But we also get a lot that's good. And the implication to tie it back to the networking is we can't use these geographic based systems in a world that is just not suited to that at all. We have to figure out what's the actionable level and it's probably going to be the individual. Yeah. It's the most delightful parallel. I have to say though, there is a possibility of going full on gatekeeper though. And that is what China's done. Like literally it has got to the place where there is one centralized gatekeeper and it's built a massive apparatus where all the information flows through it. But again, it's not something that I necessarily aspire to or envy them of. Well, that's right. I think we made this point earlier. Like there's a choice because you're right. Technology does enable the ultimate centralization or we choose to go in the other direction and let it enable individualization and accept the fact that you're going to get a lot of bad information, but you're also going to get good information in which way are you going to lean into. And it's very sort of, I think, frustrating, particularly for those that have traditionally filled gatekeeper status. The idea that, oh, individuals are going to make smart decisions about stuff, it makes their skin crawl. Like, like, oh, no, they're going to read bad stuff. They're not going to read the stuff that I told them to read, and they're going to make bad choices. And it happening in a context where obviously a choice that a lot of people in the gatekeeper role strongly disagreed with, say, as far as political choices go. I mean, uh, you could take that. And for good reason, as we're seeing in this current crisis, right? Right. But what I think is lacking in this whole debate of this misinformation and gatekeepers is a failure to recognize the inevitability of what's happening. Like that middle path is close to us. There's really two paths. There is ultimate centralization, the China path, or there is sort of the ultimate let a thousand flowers bloom, even though a lot of them are going to be rotten path. And if you reject the second The only realistic outcome given the nature of technology is the first. This is the point we've made again and again about the trade-offs that are inherent in so many of these debates and the desires to go back to a castle and moat, to go back to there being gatekeepers, and it's just not viable technologically. Right. Again, the good old days, yeah, but maybe they were the good old days simply because how rough it was for so many people didn't make it out past the gatekeepers. That's also the part that's missing. Not that you can even wind back if you choose to. The genie can't go back into the bottle to the geographic constraints. The only other option is all the way on the other side of the spectrum, which is full-on centralization. And that just doesn't sound super appealing to me. Right. It's a choice. We have to be honest about the choices that we're facing and choose them. And I try to put a bit at the end here, like there is good news in this regard. There actually are more and more studies and indications that young people in particular kind of get it. They know that a lot of stuff online is wrong and is crap, and they're smart enough to check stuff and to look elsewhere. And this is something that I wrote about, like filter bubbles, for example, previously and how they're a big problem. And there's been more research since then that actually, I have to say, kind of supports the Facebook position, which is that actually social media does actually end up exposing more viewpoints than people see otherwise. And the greatest filter bubbles and the greatest polarization are the old people, <laughs> like the people that are getting most of their news from cable TV. And that's where the greatest polarization is happening. It's where the least sort of awareness of other ideas is happening. And again, this is not to say that everything is great and peachy, but I think there is at least a glimmer of hope that as we go through this shift, and it is a multi-year, multi-decade shift, that those that sort of grew up in this environment, that grew up in a world of a deluge of information, 
Like people who grew up in the 60s and 70s, they just presumed what was on TV was true. They presumed what was in the newspaper was true. And so you put them in front of Facebook and they presume everything's true, right? Yeah. I'm not making fun of them. It's a completely understandable, like their ways of consuming media were set in a period when there were gatekeepers and they were completely unprepared for a world without gatekeepers. But like the kids are going to be okay because they're growing up in a world without gatekeepers. They are overwhelmed with information, a lot of it crap. But again, a lot of it good, and they're adapting to their environment, and there's more and more evidence of this. And there is a reason for optimism, I think. Yeah, the gatekeeping has been decentralized down to the level of the individual too. Exactly. I must confess, I was proud of myself. I saw Tom Hanks has coronavirus, COVID-19, and I was like, fake news. Like my immediate reaction was that just sounds too perfect. And I was like, I'm slowly building the muscle. But the beautiful thing was I typed it into Google and there's Tom Hanks's Twitter. And there's a statement from Tom Hanks because Tom Hanks is able to put the information out himself. And I'm actually able to go straight to the source. And uh, yeah, I agree with you. There's reason for optimism. I'm still annoyed at the algorithms and the algorithms dredging the bottom up. That sometimes does remind me of that saying, you know, that lies have run laps around whatever it was before the truth even got out of bed. I forget the saying. But that saying didn't come of age in the internet. That saying's been around forever. And I think it's also like a problem with humanity, whether you're relying on a printing press or newspapers, television, or the internet. Like that kind of thing's always going to be a problem. It's about the stuff we talk about again and again. It's about supply versus demand. And in a world where power in the market and the value came from controlling supply, like that's where you would exert pressure both to make money and also to sort of set down a narrative. But we've talked again and again in an economic sense how that's not the case on the internet. It's all about demand. It's all about, you know, pulling in information. And that means to have this obsession with supply is to miss the point. Yeah. Like there was an article talking about all the misinformation about the virus and it relied on searching on Twitter and searching on Facebook and say, wow, look at all this bad information. Well, yeah, of course. If there is an abundance of information, you can find literally anything you want to. Like you can find anything you want to because search is really good and there's a big corpus of data to search over it. The question though is, is that what people are actually consuming? Is that what they're actually believing? And I'm not saying that people are consuming and believing the right stuff. What I'm saying is that is not proof that there is a problem because we are in a world where demand matters, not supply. And we need to look at what are people demanding? Where are they consuming? Where are they believing? Again, one, there's reason for optimism and two, we don't have a choice in the matter because it's the world we live in. I enjoyed reading that article about all the fake news. So I guess that is the system working to some extent as well. Well, there's a confirmation bias aspect too, right? I've talked about this before. It's something I think about again and again when I'm writing trajectory and writing the daily update is confirmation is such a danger. And to go take this full circle, right? I was eager to write that criticism of China article because it fit what I wanted to say. It was confirmation bias. And I probably didn't talk enough about wow, if this hits the US, yeah, we might talk about it early, but we're completely unprepared to sort of handle it in a centralized way. And that was a failure on my part that was driven by confirmation bias. I think a real risk in this world of this deluge of information is a world that lends itself to confirmation bias because all the evidence that you want is only a search engine away. Because it's all out there. It's exactly right. And I mean, I, I'm just as guilty of this. I worry that 
over the years as our opinions have converged, then we're reinforcing each other a little bit. That's what happens. <laughs> That's true. But the, the beautiful thing about the internet and Twitter is we've got a whole bunch of people who are out there keeping us honest. And I try and stay open to that too. That's such a great point, actually. It's such a great point. I think we've talked about this before, but this is why the solution to so many of the issues is transparency. And you see this happening actually a lot with Facebook. There has been a drumbeat of stories over the last year about advertisements on Facebook, whether it be from politicians or whether it be from whatever it might be. And they're embarrassing stories. They're bad, right? But why are those stories coming? Why are they happening? Why is Facebook having to react and say, oh, oops, we're going to cancel that? Or, you know, you see it right now with like the masks, like people trying to sell masks or whatever. Well, the reason that it's out there is because Facebook, in reaction to what happened in 2016, they made all ads visible and accessible and searchable. And yes, that means more embarrassment because, again, bad stuff is only a search away, but it's actually a good thing because that bad stuff was already there. Like it was there. And now by virtue of being visible and findable, we can fix it. And that's the only way to deal with a deluge. It's the only way to deal with abundance. You can't gatekeep abundance. If you have a tsunami, your moat is not going to help your castle. (laughs) Right? To your point, you have to ride the wave. And this riding the wave is not just about capturing the zeitgeist, about publishing a story that resonates. Like, how do you actually manage this? How do you manage the world? Or how do you manage a tsunami? You don't manage a tsunami by putting up a wall. You don't manage a tsunami by guiding it through a gate. You manage a tsunami by figuring out how you can ride it and leverage it to the outcomes that you want. This isn't an easy topic to talk about for a lot of reasons, but I think it's been a good conversation. I'm starting to get to that point in the episode where I'm thinking about what I'm going to say and the realization that you or me or our families or, you know, like someone who's listening to this, who's been listening to this for years, but in maybe a couple of weeks or a couple of months is no longer going to be with us as a result of what's happening. Like it saddens me and it worries me. Yeah, it's almost a bit of escape to get into it here. And I think you're right. And it really brings home in a very real way the nature of trade-offs. Like we are going to face and we are facing the trade-offs in sort of our system of government and the way that we organize ourselves and the personal freedoms that we hold dear. It's going to cost us. And I guess to the point, that's why it's worth talking about because at the time where it seems the most damaging is when it's most important to keep in mind the benefits. Something I think we talked about this when we talked about China previously was, I think I made the point, like, we're not trying to make a moral argument here per se about what's right, what's wrong, in part because our morals are so ingrained in where we were raised, this culture we were raised in, and all those sorts of stuff. It's just like, this is what I believe in, and this is what I find to be true. And again, this isn't an argument for moral relativity. It's just a recognition that, Different cultures and different countries and different people view the world in fundamentally different ways. And with that acknowledgement, I have to face these are the weaknesses of the system that we chose, but it's a reminder that everything is a trade-off. And if you are arguing, whether it be about information online, whether it be about VPNs, that like this is absolutely the right thing to do, it's probably not a good argument because you didn't articulate the trade-offs involved and we're going to have to live that. It's going to really suck. Yep. I totally agree. The framing of like, yeah, don't just talk to me about what you get. Talk to me about the cost of what you're giving up. It's a very solid reminder. Everyone right now would like to wave a magic wand and have like Chinese style power to get this over with. And that's going to be a real temptation going forward. And it's not going to happen for one. And two, it's important to 
keep in mind that that has implications up and down the stack, as it were. Yeah. What works for Apple doesn't work for Amazon. And honestly, to make that more real, I would be honestly terrified by the current executive branch having the kind of power you're describing. Even absent that, like it's it's like... You're right. That is almost an intellectually lazy argument. It's not just as a result of who's there. Again, you're giving up the strength of what the current system has, which is the power of the individual and the power of decentralization. That's right. And this isn't to say the U.S. does everything right by no means. We're seeing very painfully how many things it doesn't. And it doesn't mean it can't do better. It absolutely can. But at some point, you run into trade-offs mean making choices, and that matters. Like your priority stack matters. And yep. and we're going to have to face that in a very painful way, I think, over the next weeks and months. And everyone stay safe, stay home. Yeah. And yeah, we have to get through this together. And please don't go out. <laughs> Just stay home. Yeah. Seriously. Yes. All right, James. Well, on that very somber note, uh, yeah. I, will, I will talk to you soon. Take care.